Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Not Alex. Hello. Jordan. Hello. Hello. Hello, Bobby. It is so good to be on this wonderful pod with you again. And I'm sure Alex is feeling hella FOMO. This is the first time in the tipping pitches history where I have introduced a podcast with somebody else that wasn't Alex. Uh, if you're listening to this, and you're wondering why Jordan Schusterman from Cespedes Family Barbecue is on the other line and not Alex Baisley. It's because Alex Baisley is enjoying his life in Colombia. and Shame. We, we, Shame collect- we collectively decided for him not to bring his uh, microphone to record himself talking about trades, which we don't, we don't really do here. So instead, I am joined by Jordan Schusterman, who, as I said, is one half of the wonderful Cespedes Family Barbecue to talk about the trade deadline, to do a a quick little 10-course meal on the Major League Baseball trade deadline before later in this episode, we invite Evan Drellick and we go back in time to when Alex was still in the United States when we recorded this podcast 10 days ago. <laughs> wow, so, Jordan. This is, we're, we're really cr- crossing a lot of time zones and, and just time periods and everything. This is great. I'm excited to be here, though. Thank you for the invite. Uh, Jordan, I've tasked you with preparing a 10-course meal to explain the Major League Baseball trade deadline. You know, I, Have you watched The Bear? Are you in on that yet? I know I haven't. Uh, that's I guess I'll have to add it to the list now that I um, I just moved. I now have multiple televisions from which I can stream t- uh, shows. Should I be adding that? Uh, yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's only one season, only like eight episodes. That's it's not, not going to ruin your life. That's, that's the bet. Whenever someone's pitching a show to me, when it, saying it's only one <laughs> season is, is really the best thing you can possibly say. It can be, nothing that matters more than what the show is about. <laughs> Well, we're in on courses. We're in on French brigades. So we're bringing that over to the Tipping Pitches podcast. 10-course meal, Jordan. You know what's included in a 10-course dinner? Hors d'oeuvres, soup, appetizer, salad, fish, main course, palate cleanser, second main course, dessert. And to top it all off, something that I had to look up the pronunciation of before talking about it on a podcast, mignardise. Mm, Mignardise. Same. Who doesn't love Uh, a good mignardise? When you you sent me uh, what it was, I also was just surprised to find out what it was in general. Um, But... We'll save that. We'll save it for listening. I'm sure there's a good number of people listening wondering what the hell it is. So, you know, you can look it up yourself before we get there or or we can uh, deliver you some del- delicious uh, menus at the end of this, as you said, quick 10-course meal. Speed 10-course like meal. Yes. Um, so, Chef Jordan, what trade is the hors d'oeuvre of our 10-course meal? Uh, I'm going to, you know, or this is one of my favorite parts about any 10 course meal or any sort of meal. The hors d'oeuvres? Right? Yeah, the hors d'oeuvres. Um, but I'm, I'm going to begin with one Picks trade, in blanket. <laughs> one trade that should have been one trade that was actually two trades. And that's the deals made for some reason separately by the Angels and Phillies, uh, on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, about three hours before the deadline, they, for some reason, swapped Brandon Marsh, uh, for catching prospect Logan Ohapi. And then right before the deadline, they sent Noah Syndergaard from, uh, Anaheim to Philadelphia, uh, in exchange for Mickey Moniak. Oh my goodness. And another prospect. And I, first and foremost, we couldn't have just done this on the same call. Did we really have to hop back on a new zoom 
uh, and nailed down this second trade uh, between Dombrowski and, and Perry Manassian is, is very, very strange. That's the first thing I want to say about it. Do you think GMs are doing Zooms now? Never even thought about that. Yeah, I don't know. That probably, probably not, right? not, especially not like you really can't afford to have any Zoom malfunctions on trade deadline day. Like you really, you, you might just want to have to stick to the landline. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of want a landline. Like I keep telling this to everybody and they're like, you're crazy. You're never going to use it. You think landlines but I are want that come feeling, that, that tactile feeling of picking up the phone and putting it back down. Like you don't get that anymore. You just press a little button on your touch oh, screen now terrible. and the call's over. How am I terrible. supposed to feel like Billy Bean? No, I know. Uh, the reason why I wanted to start with this one um, is really just because uh, I think we knew the Phillies were, were going to do something. Um, and, you know, they also got David Robertson from the Cubs. But I just I, are we are we feeling like this was was enough for the Phillies who, again, have like not had a winning season in a decade quietly and um, are <laughs> not, in the mix. Not that quietly. <laughs> yeah, I guess quietly. Yeah, not that quietly. Uh, and I also like that this trade was, you know, the Phillies have a lot of arguments for kind of being the Angels East recently, right? And so these two teams kind of linking up here, the Angels obviously a complete disaster, but the Phillies still going for it. I just thought it was an interesting pairing of teams, and I have no idea why the Angels already gave up on Brandon Marsh. It's funny to me that every deadline, the Phillies wake up and realize that their team is not actually very good, and they just like, buy oh, every shit, year. Gotta do something. It doesn't matter, who, doesn't matter who the GM is, doesn't matter what year it is, doesn't matter where the payroll is at. They're just like, you know what? We got to trade for a good reliever. And then the good reliever comes to the Phillies and is part of a fucking dog shit bullpen, <laughs> and they don't yes. make the playoffs. Very uh, true. Uh, I don't know if that's going to be true this year, though, because expanded playoffs, they got a chance. They do have a chance. Uh, they did DFA Jerry Familia. That's obviously a win. And Dave Robertson has been good. We'll see how he does in his second tour of duty in Philadelphia. <laughs> this um, is how I know that the bets are not run by Sandy Alderson anymore is because they didn't pick up Jerry's Familia immediately. We've already spent too much time on the hors d'oeuvres. Thank you for that delicious hors d'oeuvres. I agree. Let's move on to the course, soup. course, it's soup time. Yes. I don't really know why I picked this one as soup, but I did want to talk about it. And that is what the Chicago Cubs did and didn't do. Uh, Bobby, I'm currently watching the Cubs play the Cardinals, and they just showed a graphic uh, promoting season tickets. And they had a picture of Wilson Contreras, who for some reason is still uh, on the Cubs. He actually homered today for the Cubs, so that should up his non-existent trade value because, again, the trade value trade deadline is passed. Um, but it was very strange to see them trade their entire bullpen and not Wilson Contreras or Ian Happ. I frankly can't make any sense of it. It was the most slam dunk put on a fucking platter, not yes. to overdo the 10 course metaphor no, I know. here. Maybe we should have put but it was put on, on a platter <laughs> for Billy Hippler and the New York Mets to trade for Wilson Contreras. They don't want to call up Francisco Alvarez, apparently. And Wilson Contreras would have been a, a true rental. He would have been done by the end of this year, and they would have had no use for him past this year because Alvarez is the catcher of the future. Yep. Why is he not on the? Why is Ronnie Mauricio not in the Cubs organization? Yeah, exactly right. Like if Ronnie Mauricio was to ask, I guess that's a lot for a rental. But like, dude, what? Why well, Mauricio the and Mets. then some other depth pitching prospect for Robertson and Contreras was the trade. Don't understand why it didn't happen. Yeah, not complicated. Come on, GM Bobby is is lapping you, Billy Epler. I mean, come on. Uh, it <laughs> Are seems we sure like that the- Billy Epler is like doing anything? <laughs> I, I, it's a great question. I, I, it's, it's hard to say. So I just think that the Cubs, no, look, sure. The, it's like, I guess the Cubs decided if we're not going to get a, a really awesome prospect, we'll just take, you know, the 80th overall pick in the 23 draft. Like, okay, sure. But obviously also just super awkward for Wilson Contreras. So just strange. So it's time for appetizers. All right. Time for appetizers. Now the appetizer, this is a big one. We're actually get me going to get, get my, wet my appetite a little bit. You know, we're getting, we, we all know what the main course is going to be. So get me going. 
we're going to talk about Luis Castillo now. And that's because chronologically, Uh-oh. this was the one that set the tone for the deadline. It happened on Friday before, uh, you know, all the madness that happened on Monday and Tuesday. Jerry D., the general manager of my favorite team, making the 133rd trade of his Mariners tenure. Uh, and that's not a joke. That's a real number. Um, <laughs> uh, making another huge deal with the Reds. He is single-handedly, uh, after the Suarez and, and Winker trade before the season, he is single-handedly replenishing the Reds' farm system. I don't know why he is taking it upon himself to do that. Uh, but really what this was, was deciding we need a legit dude pitcher, which I really appreciate because – Again, the Mariners teams of the last five years have not exactly had dudes with real stuff. And uh, did they overpay a little bit with the prospect package? Perhaps. But that's how you get the deal done. That's how you get the player. Finishing second in these uh, in these you know situations is not a, a very fun feeling. And after watching Luis Castillo against the Yankees yesterday, I'm feeling great about the deal. I wish the best to all the prospects that went to Cincinnati. But I, I think this was a great deal uh, for Seattle. And I think if it's part of what gets them in the postseason, let alone makes them slightly more competent in the postseason, I think this is a no-brainer. And, and I, everyone being like, oh, my God, this trade package is better than the one that, that Soto... Like, no, shut up. It's fine. Relax. It's okay. These are <laughs> eight-ball shortstops. Long way to go. It's fine. Yes, they gave up a lot, but that's how you get these deals done. So, credits to Jerry D. I was very happy with this deal. What did you think about this one? Uh, wait, before I tell you what I think about it, because I don't do actual baseball analysis here. Oh, notice. sorry. I, 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 I are you familiar with the drill tweet? Is Wario a libertarian, the greatest threat in the history of forums, locked by a moderator after 12,239 pages yes. of heated are debate? You, yes. Are you... Going to compare this to Jerry DePoto? <laughs> is Jerry DePoto a good GM? The greatest threat <laughs> in the history of forums? Yes. Locked yes. by I've moderators. Reopened by moderators after this trade. Because you know what? This is some substance. This is something to chew on. It's true. And I've said this before. When you make 130 plus trades in five well, one of them's or six, seven years, you're going to have some huge wins and you're going to have some huge disasters, right? Um, and that kind of leaves you in a spot where it's like, eh, I don't know. He's which, which column would you put Jared Kelnick in? Hmm? Uh, in that's a good question. At this stage, after the home run against the Yankees, I think it's it's an obvious one. It's fine. I'm okay, not very sure. happy for Edwin Diaz. Hey, that trade's not that happens deadline. Shut up. I don't want to hear about it. Shout out to us for maintaining our friendship through all of this it's Mets so Mariners true. nonsense. Just, there are still many ups and downs to be had. Um, uh, what we do know is that Robinson Cano is no longer playing baseball. All right, let's <laughs> move on to salad the course. Salad course, and this one is kind of off of the Castillo one. But this is, this is an important one. We knew this one was coming. It's Frankie Montas to the Yankees. Now, this one, it seemed like Yankees fans, by the way, also funny yesterday, the Yankees fans clamoring for Luis Castillo, having him Cope. dominate Cope. them yesterday, was immediately after the deadline, was, was very hilarious. But hey, they did uh, make a nice little deal for Frankie Montas. I prefer Castillo over Montas. I said that before the Mariners traded for him. But this does seem like a weird move, or, or a totally good move. We'll get to the weird move in our next course. Uh, but this, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think Frankie's fine. Um, and I don't, I guess wish we, I wish we had our, our, our friend, uh, Alex Basil here to tell us about Frankie Montas, but, um, you know, Alex last, doesn't know who the Oakland A's are. Oh, he's, he's oh, never mind. <laughs> I, 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 that's a good point. They, they haven't even existed the whole season, but you know, this was nice. This was one, a, g- a great example of like, for most teams training for Frankie Montas, everyone, it's like, this is awesome. Amazing. And instead every Yankees move is just like, all right, great. What are we, what are we doing next? <laughs> On to the next one. It's like, all right. Pablo Lopez, come on, make it happen. Okay, fish course. Fish course, off of that one. Oh my God, we got Frankie Montas. This is amazing. He's going to make our rotation so deep and so great. Oh, just kidding. Let's trade Jordan (laughs) Montgomery to the Cardinals for Harrison Bader, who can't walk. 
Um, I'm Wait, I'm f- a little disappointed you didn't put the Anthony Bass trade in the fish, the fish I, course. I thought about it, but I didn't have that much to say about a Blue Jays-Marlins trade, so I, I wanted to spare your audience of that. I'm just um, proud of Anthony Bass for being able to enter Canada. Here's why. <laughs> yeah, and Zach Pop, who's already Canadian, so I'm sure he was in good shape. Uh, this, was, uh, this is why I'm putting uh, Jordan Montgomery and Harrison Bader for fish. Uh, not for everyone. This trade is not. I'm not. I don't particularly like fish. I didn't yeah, you're not really like not a seafood guy. I'm not a seafood guy. So I, I didn't really like this trade. Um, <laughs> I have talked to some. Uh, you know, my my lovely colleague uh, Pedro Mora. I talked to him yesterday. He was like, "No, I actually like it. Like it's for the postseason." Wow, Pedro you know, Mora name drop. Okay, elite media we member. Love Jordan Pedro Schusterman. Mora. I, yeah, I know. I mean, I, and he's a colleague. He's a colleague and a friend. Yeah. So you talked to jealous. Jeff Passan at all, or maybe Ken maybe, Rosenthal? Maybe. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. Uh, but I can <laughs> tell you that there are some people that like fish, <laughs> but I am not one of them. And it does not appear that Yankees fans are particularly thrilled with this move either. If this was straight up and Harrison Bader was healthy, I do think Harrison Bader is being a little bit underrated at this point, and everyone thinks he's like a terrible hitter when he's merely just like a below average hitter who is a great defender, but. It is insane the fact that he is just in a walking boot and can't play for the next month, and the Yankees just dealt away their four starter. Um, I it's pretty wild. The confusing part to me is, don't you think they could have gotten this trade done without giving up Jordan Montgomery? Right, I would think so. But obviously, the Cardinals were desperate for starting pitching, so I guess they said, uh, yeah. this is the only thing we're gonna." We're you know, they're like, "We're gonna trade we, for we an this. actually good left-handed pitcher after signing Stephen Matz." Yes, and trading for Jose Quintana. Yeah, that's actually a great point. <laughs> Hopefully, Jordan Montgomery is better for them uh, than Stephen Matz. Uh, but you know, I just I, so I, I liked it for the Cardinals and, and Bader. Now they whatever they move Carlson over center field. Um, but yeah, I mean. Look, was Jordan Montgomery going to start in the playoffs for the Yankees? Probably not. But, like, pitchers get hurt. I don't know if you heard about that. Um, and that seems like something that could happen. Including and Frank, them in Frankie a, Montas, who's missed, like, 40% of the Including year. Frankie Montas, right? And, it's, and that's why it was just so funny when this trade happened, like, 10 minutes before the deadline. And Yankees fans were like, oh, well, that just means we're getting Pablo Lopez. Like, obviously, <laughs> like, obviously this just means Pablo Lopez. And then we it was, like— the By 630. federal government to commission the study on Yankees fans' brains. Mass study. <laughs> we need people to start volunteering for it. Like, they volunteer for organ donation. Yes. Like, we need this. We need to and understand it more. And then at 630, Yankees fans were like, oh, well, guess we just have Harrison Bader in a walking boot. All right. <laughs> and Jordan Montgomery and had a Garrett crazy- Cole got absolutely lit up <laughs> the next morning. <laughs> Garrett Cole got absolutely crushed. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a, what, a, what a sequence uh, for, the, for the Yankees. All right. It's time for the main course. It's time for the main course. Now, we all know what one of the main courses is going to be. But I actually, for the first main course, I actually want to talk about Josh Hader. Oh. Obviously, look, it's all, it's all about the Padres. But I think we have to talk about Josh Hader. Because this is a pretty, this is a pretty wild move. <laughs> it's, for more so for the Brewers. Yes. Um, now, last year, I think, I think uh, Ken Rosendahl made the comparison in his, uh, in his uh, piece about the traded line to the Kendall Graveman trade last year. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the Mariners just like giving away like a very important part, part of their clubhouse for you know team control for club control of Abraham Toro and whatever, and we don't have to relitigate. Kendall, that, but I'm just asking questions and doing my own research, Greatman. Exactly, but I will say that the vibes seemingly in the Brewers clubhouse after this trade were similar in the sense that they were like, "What do we? Why? What? what yeah. What is like? I you can't explain to my simple baseball player brain." 
why we would just trade yeah. our closer when we're in first place. Like, and and that's I a get dude. That. That's a guy that I see that I don't think that I could get a hit off of. Why are we trading him? <laughs> right. And then for and then for Devin Williams to immediately give up a walk-off home run last night in his first save. Like, it was just one of those things where, like, you know, baseball karma was, was pretty bleak there. Um, and... It was a like I know they've been trying to sort of move Hater for a while, and like I I, I generally am, am team sell high on relievers because relievers are volatile. That's fine, but in this case, I just think this was a pretty wild decision. And even though it could actually work out for them in the long run, like I like some of the players they got, uh, pretty pretty bold move at the stage that they're at for for Milwaukee here. And obviously, it's just now it's just a footnote of the Padres deadline. But like that's pretty insane that they also got Josh Hader on their team. Uh, I feel like we've maybe been doing a bad job of saying what the actual trades are. Like we're assuming oh, people know what yeah. the trades are. But yeah, yeah. Um, Josh Hader for Taylor Rogers. Taylor Rogers. Not, so it's just like, like oh, he's Trevor a left-handed Rogers. reliever. Like what's the difference? Uh, Denelson Lamette, who they've already DFA'd, don't yeah. probably one of the worst medicals uh, left in baseball. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and then Esteri Ruiz, uh, a really speedy outfielder who maybe will play center field uh, for them. Uh, and then I'm forgetting who the fourth piece was. Already. That's not that important. Oh, yeah, what, sorry. What, oh, Robert, what is yeah, important? Sorry, he's good. Yeah. Oh, right. He is good. Yeah. Good, good pitcher name. Good pitcher. Uh, That's true. What is important is that I was listening to the Effectively Wild Trade Deadline episode yesterday, and they said that this is basically the only instance in the history of baseball since we started tracking saves in a real way where two teams have exchanged their saves leaders at the deadline oh yeah certainly seems that way but again if i could exchange taylor rogers for josh Hader, i would do that so uh again easy move for the padres um i mean whatever like again i think this could work out down the line but like for the brewers it's not like they've like they they need to get over the hump now right like and yeah. josh Hader, i feel like could probably be a big part of that not that it's worked super well for him in the postseason so far weird but you know what? move fine. for future gm of the new york mets david stearns okay <laughs> you're so you're still you're still hoping that he <laughs> that he's uh so he can make moves like this it's for the mets. time for the palate cleanser jordan well he only made moves like this because because of his broke boy ownership no very it's true. not gonna be a problem uh, in queens uh, yeah I don't know how broke boy the the brew. This seems more like he just really wants to be the Rays, even though your fave Mark Atanasio. Like, exactly, we 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 love Mark. Not Selected in the least terrible owners draft not, by not Jordan Schuster and James. I know, Mance. not as much when I picked the learners. Uh, that doesn't look so good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we did take John Sherman. I'm still feeling good about that one. I need uh, my anyway, palate cleansed now. It's time for the palate. We, we got to move away from the Padres and we got to talk about Joey Gallo to the Los Angeles Dodgers. <laughs> this um, is supposed to cleanse my palate. <laughs> It's a little bitter, don't you think? <laughs> yes. Well, right. Exactly. This is I'm going for the for a bit of irony here, right? Because mm. Bobby, it was like, oh, Joey Gallo. Like, I, I said this when I revealed all the trades to Jake. But it's like, if you thought Gallo's like, we got to get him out of the spotlight or at least somewhere where like the pressure is not really going to be as high. <laughs> and that's maybe the case with the Dodgers. Maybe he doesn't even make the postseason roster if he's like still this crappy. Um, but I just, I just think this is wild for him to end up now on just the other best team in the league. I think, and honestly, I also love it because it's like, we've been hearing Yankees fans talking about how much Joe Gallo sucks. And then it's like the Dodgers of all teams are like, yeah, it's fine. We got it. We're good. We want him. <laughs> <laughs> we still want him. We still want him. So. The absolute top one percentile outcome of this is Joey Gallo hitting a walk-off homer in the World Series against the Yankees. Like, please, please. Just get us somewhere close to that, right? We're Anywhere near it. I'm still hoping for the the Carlos Correa, Gary Sanchez, Joe Urshela back-to-back-to-back homers <laughs> to eliminate the Yankees and have the Twins beat the Yankees for the first time uh, in the postseason. Um, that's honestly more realistic 
than uh, I think the Joey Gallo in the World Series won. Yeah, probably. Um, but we will see. All right. Uh, I wonder what the second man course is going to be. I think? think I know, but I'll let you serve it to me, Chef. All right. You ready? Yes. Bobby. Mackenzie Gore is on the move. <laughs> <laughs> Former top Mackenzie pitching Gore, prospect. One of the great pitching prospects we have seen in the last 20 years. There was nothing. He's the next Clayton Kershaw. Oh, my God. Thank you and to the all, learners. All the They've struggles. They've landed Mackenzie Gore. And all the struggles that he had, the mechanics, the injuries. Now he's injured again. But he, he was All the scouts so saying that he actually sucks. All the scouts saying that he actually sucks. But then he was really good for the first half of the season. And for the Nationals to land a guy like Mackenzie Gore, <laughs> I mean... Mike Rizzo, this guy, World Series pedigree, he knows. But what did they give up? Oh, what's I'm reading fine print here. <laughs> oh, sorry. They gave up not only a future Hall of Famer who's 23, they also gave up the second best hitter at the deadline, right? Quickly. Josh Bell, not a throw-in. Nope. Second best hitter available. And he's just like, oh, yeah, we'll just we'll attack. And makes no sense why they didn't make that in two separate moves and make another team pay a premium for Josh <laughs> it's, Bell. It makes it's, absolutely zero sense. It's extremely bizarre. Um, okay, Juan Soto's on the Padres. So I guess we should say that. Like, I saw him. He played for the Padres last night. I watched it. Yeah, weird. You are one of the great chroniclers of Juan Soto's young career. You've been there from the beginning. (sighs) You were on the boat before he even got called up. You were making jokes about how he couldn't drink when he was winning series for the Washington Nationals. I know. He was, right. He turned 21 during the, I think, right after they won the World Series or during the parade or during the World Series or something. Um, yeah, I mean, I, there's no, he's my favorite player. I can't believe they actually traded him. I, we don't have to litigate. Oh, well, he was never going to sign there. And if he was going to reject every extension offer, I know Rizzo came out and said like, that's for me and Alex to do in the off season. Exactly. That's, that's for you to do later. Um, let's just deal with the facts. Uh, Juan Soto is not on the nationals anymore and there's no reason to go see the nationals. Did they get some good young players who might help them not be terrible forever? Yes. Fine. Uh, that doesn't mean you win the trade. Ever, no matter what, how many prospects you get. And for the Padres, uh, it's absolutely amazing. And I'm really happy for them. And I hope that it's enough to even come close to the Dodgers. Because if not, it's really depressing. But the thing is, they got two more years of Juan Soto, too. So even if it doesn't happen this year, uh, Juan Soto may be still peaking. Who knows? Fernando Tati Jr. hasn't played a game yet this season. Or has he played a game? I can't remember no. if he came. No, no he, hasn't, he hasn't. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's going to be it's gonna be a spectacle. Even last night's lineup was like pretty hard to wrap my mind around. And knowing that Tatis is coming. Um, is really exciting, and I just I just hope it works. Like I I want to see that kind of aggression from Preller work because it hasn't so far. It really hasn't worked out. <laughs> He's really turned for a lot of good players, and they just haven't won very much. And so I would like it to work so that other GMs think that they also need to make crazy moves like this. Um, but I just love love on Soda. I hope he's happy, and uh, yeah. They really did it. They really did it. He feels like the one basketball GM in a world of baseball GMs. <laughs> He's just like stars, stars, like stars. Fuck the stars. picks. Fuck yeah. the, oh, you want? Oh, Sam, this is, Sam Presti. You want thirty-eight first-round picks? Fine, take them. Take them, Bobby. Okay. I've heard this is a stars league. <laughs> I, if, is that, this league. It's about. It's about the third. You why have to get we, a third star? Why aren't Bobby? we doing? that kind of coverage about baseball. Why aren't we carrying the water like that? Like anytime no. when Eric Hosmer went to the Red Sox. Oh, this we're league. getting to that. We're getting to that for dessert. Oh, sorry. Here. I didn't mean to yeah, step on dessert. Yeah, oh, yeah, dessert. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, okay. Because um, it's so delicious. All right. Um, second main course was Juan Soto. Yes. It's time for now dessert we get, now. 
now we get to dessert because it, it, it you know, we're, we're coming Can off. We, I mean, let's pace this out. You know, I need like 10 minutes after that second main course. I'm, I'm getting <laughs> full, Jordan. I am full. That, that's true. Uh, that said, um, I think we have to talk about the Eric Hosmer saga for dessert Always because, down. because Always Bobby, down. it was delicious. <laughs> <laughs> um, so AJ Preller signed Eric Hosmer for eight years, $144 million. Within a year and a half, he was like, man, I got to get rid of this guy. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he has been trying so desperately to do this for years, even though everyone's like, Hosmer's the leader. Hosmer is postseason experience. Everyone loves him in the clubhouse. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you know what? First of all, by the way, I do think we now have also made Eric Hosmer sound like he's the worst baseball player in the world um, when merely he's just probably making too much money for how good he is. He's like the definition of league average. He's fine. He's totally fine. Um, But fine is not good enough for in a star's league, right? We're trying to get Fine's not good enough in this league. This league. Hashtag this league. And so he's been trying to trade Eric Hosmer. And I love that he gets, this is it. This is the, this is the epic climax of the AJ Pell experience, right? He's training for Juan Soto. And he couldn't resist but try and get Eric Hosmer into this deal. And my genuine theory, and I don't know if there's any reporting, this is, I'll just throw allegedly in there. I am so confident that Mike Rizzo, at the outset of this, was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll take Hosmer. And Mike Rizzo's like, yeah, we'll take Hosmer. And then, like, he's, like, looking to his, like, AGM. He's like, Hosmer is going to reject this trade. Like, there's no <laughs> way. Like, it doesn't matter. So he's like, so they put in Hosmer so they could get maximum prospects, right? And then as soon as, then it's like, oh, no, Hosmer's, Hosmer's not accepting this. And at that point, Preller has completely backed himself into a quarter and he has to just be like, fuck it, Luke Boyd, sure, whatever. And then, <laughs> and then more importantly, it's like, well, um, gotta send Hosmer somewhere. Can't be uh, having him walk back in here when I desperately tried to trade him. And so he just sends him to the Red Sox who, Red Sox, we haven't really mentioned yet, have had probably had one of the more perplexing deadlines of any team, um, which was pretty hilarious. Uh, but this was just this whole saga and just like Eric Hosmer like stopping the trade from happening is just an all-time thing. And I'm glad he did. There was never a chance that he was gonna really stop the trade, though. Right? Like no, AJ no, no, the Preller, there's no happen. way that AJ Preller was like, actually, all the marbles rest on this. No, 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 of course not. But it is still funny that like he was clearly in the trade. Like I like then the notion that Air, that AJ Preller thought he wouldn't reject it is hysterical <laughs> without checking first. Because <laughs> like if there was ever a time to use a no trade clause under almost any circumstance, it would be being sent to the 2022 Washington Nationals. Exactly. Years, so know. that was one of the funniest parts about this is that people were like, "Well, why would Eric Hosmer, who's been living in San Diego and on the Padres and signed an eight year deal, so presumably he has like a long term living situation in San Diego?" Why would he and his family want to move to Washington to be part of the shittiest team in baseball for the next three years? And then, like, not two hours later, he got flipped to Boston. So, like, in terms of a living situation, marginal difference. Marginal. Marginal at best. But in terms of a baseball situation, I guess it's cool to play in Fenway. The Red Sox are much better. better. There are actual good teams there. There are actual good players there. It's a pretty great manager. At least for now. Yeah, no, that's true. I will say, to be fair, I'm pretty sure it was a no-trade list and not a no-trade clause. So I'm mm. not sure if he, if Boston was on there and he rejected or if he couldn't have. But 
The Nationals were obviously on the list, so he, he rejected them. So it's possible that he had no say. So maybe there were some funnier places he could have been sent than Boston. But I, I just love that it added to the weirdness that was the Boston deadline. Yes. Um, so that was, uh, man, God, Hosmer Prella is just one of the funniest things ever. And oh, and the last thing we have to say about this, Luke Voigt. Oh, man. That's tough just tough. Beat. That's just really tough. <laughs> <laughs> you got to oh. come to the NL East. You got to face Jacob DeGrom a couple times oh. for the rest of the year. That's really. You really know what terrible. I hope they do? I hope that the Nationals like market Luke Voigt as like the greatest home run hitter in the world. <laughs> like that's honestly their only hope. And honestly, Luke Voigt's like one of the only reasons you should go to the games. So. Um, and that's saying something because Luke Voigt, he's, he's like fine. fine. He's fine. He's, he's fine. He's fine. He's, fine. he's coasting he's, off the fact that he just keeps taking buttons down and down and down but he's not actually that good of a baseball player that's that has become his thing and it is apparently enough of a thing all right it's time for the minardis that we have we saved enough room for it jordan it's it's a one bite dessert bobby to knock your socks off do we have enough room for the minardis (laughs) bobby you always have room for for some mets talk right Look, were there bigger trades that we could still talk about? All you know, the twins had a really nice deadline. Could we talk about the Orioles? Yeah, but that's not exactly sweet and delicious. We don't want to talk about that. Um, we got to talk about the Mets uh, and what they did and what they didn't do. And mostly because if there's anyone that probably would enjoy some Minyardis, it would be Darren Ruff and Daniel Vogelback, <laughs> um, who are, have, are making the have uh, combined to create the beefiest platoon in all the land. Um, and the look, beefiest. I, and the the best. This is the, the delicious Minardis. I don't think has Darren Ruff had an at bat yet. I look Vogue first of all, <laughs> Vogi. Let's just talk about Vogi for a second. To see him on the freaking back page of the New York Post, swinging for his grand slam, his first home run. Like the glow up for for Vogi is just amazing, and I yeah. am so happy for him. And I hope that it continues. I love that he is getting this national attention because. Obviously, his career started. Uh, well, actually, he is the reason the Cubs broke the drought. So that's the first thing. R- remember, he was traded from the Cubs for Mike Montgomery, who got the final out. So uh, that the Cubs do not win the World Series without Daniel Vogelback. So that's exactly that. right. Yes, but for him to start his career, uh, you know, with my beloved Mariners, to be a part of the 2019 Mariners that started 15 and four, and he was an All Star and everything, and then to just have it go totally south. Traded to the Blue Jays for three days, and then Milwaukee, and then now with Pittsburgh, and then now on the big stage in Queens is amazing. At the same time, to come out of this deadline with Vogue, Darren Ruff, Michael Givens, whose ERA with the Mets is seventeen million now, <laughs> and uh, and Tyler Naquin, who's just like I guess like Texas Travis Jankowski, um, is certainly eh, what is it. You tell me, Bobby. What the hell is what the hell? Just as the, just as I'm wondering what the hell Minyardis is, tell me what the <laughs> hell this deadline was for your New York Mets. It was mid. It was mid. It was mid Yardies. It was. <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, I don't know. I think that there is a decent case to be made that it's not the flashiest deadline ever, but that <laughs> <laughs> certainly, certainly an easy case to be. I think an easy case to be made. But that they identified the no. problem that they Functional. had, which was that they had no power at the DH spot. And they, via a platoon, have remedied that problem. And it's a pretty damn good platoon. I, I think Vogelbach, at this point in his career, they're not going to try to make him... They're not going to try to make him out to be more than he is good at doing already. He gets on base, he walks, and he hits right-handed pitching for power. 
And Darren Ruff is the exact opposite now. At this, he's like forty, so we know pretty consistently <laughs> yeah. that thirty-six, he just... but still under team control next year because he never. <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 very weird. They did trade like a crazy amount for Darren Ruff. Um, Don't want to talk about it. Which we can skip over that part. I'm also very convinced that J.D. Davis will be fixed with the Giants. Oh, a hundred percent. Easily, right? Yeah. Easily. And they have him for a few more years. So that's like He a is the exact profile of player that they're going to turn totally. into Farhan a 160 WRC+. hundred percent. Farhan is salivating. But I do agree that functionally they did improve. Um, and I do Not like Not getting a left-handed players. reliever, that that hurts. That would have maybe mm. overwhelmed the Minardi's course, though. So that's why they didn't do it. They knew this was coming. <laughs> they knew this segment much. was coming. We've too much nine. food. We've already had nine courses, Bobby. We've already <laughs> we've already signed Max Scherzer. Okay, yeah, just freaking chill out. We have Jacob <laughs> Degrom back. All right, like it's fine. It's fine. We're fine. Um, but yeah, so I I think that that I I just want to make sure getting Jacob Degrom back is like going out for a and then out double double after your ten course meal. You know that's amazing. Yeah, it's like really we're really we still have room. Is that really possible? <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think I think those are really the big ones. I think we we covered everything besides you know the Orioles and and the Twins, which is fine. That's for another day. Jordan Schusterman, one half of Cespedes Family Barbecue. Thank you so much for your real baseball analysis. Thank you so much for filling in pinch hitting for one Alex Basley, who I hope is joy- enjoying his time in Columbia and who will be part of the interview with Evan Drellick coming up right after this break. Jordan, where can people find find what you're working on? You're pretty good at this podcasting thing. Have you ever thought about doing one? Nah, man, you know, people have told me that and uh, maybe, maybe someday, maybe someday I will finally do a podcast. Well, let me know if you ever do. I'd love to be a part of it. This was a nice test run. Yeah, that would be, that'd be sweet, man. Are you kidding me? I would love that. Like our chemistry feels like we've been doing this for, for years. All right. Um, uh, yeah, foxsports.com is where you could find all of uh, my writing and Jake's writing. Uh, Jake Mintz, he's the other guy. He's not here. We shouldn't even tell Jake that I did this, and he'll just see it in his podcast feed. and then He won't like, see it. Fuck? Yeah, he won't, he won't see it. Uh, foxsports.com is really where you can uh, see our stuff. And yeah, just follow on, on Twitter uh, at CespedesBBQ. And uh, and uh, maybe, uh, who knows, maybe we'll, have a, maybe we'll have a podcast at some point in the, in the near future. Maybe we will. But you, in the meantime, just keep enjoying tipping pitches. Yay, bye. Thanks, Bobby. Okay, we are now joined by The Athletic's Evan Drellick. Evan, I think that you are probably the person whose articles we have cited the most often on the Tipping Pitches podcast. So it's fitting that you are now finally joining us after much time. How are you, dude? It's amazing that uh, a podcast where my art- articles are cited often would actually like still exist, that, that people haven't been bored to <laughs> tears by all the things I write about. But I'm doing all right, guys. How are you? That's the beauty of Tipping Pitches. You know, this yeah. niche little community where we care so much about finance and labor yeah and you weird you, baseball you, shit you noted Nerds. in your in your in your uh in your email conversation leading up to this you you clarified that you you don't really talk about any of the on-field stuff and our Correct. listeners just um, that little those little distractions on the field right yeah exactly i think our <laughs> listeners are ch- are champing at the bit um to to have more discussions about non-field stuff I get these like texts from radio stations that want to talk about the trade deadline. And it, and it is weird as being a national baseball writer and being like, yeah, I'm not covering that. I right. don't really know. Please go ask Ken Rosenthal or any of the other dozens of reporters <laughs> who actually cover that. I can tell you about 
the latest uh, U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee letter. Like, that's what I can tell you about. So, yeah, you just got to set up like text message forwarding with Ken, you know, get him in a group chat with all the radio producers so that you don't have to let them down easily every time. I'm sure he'd love that. That, that, <laughs> that would really make his day. <laughs> um, well, we wanted to start by talking about that, actually, because, you know, you were covering the Astros for a while as a beat. And then I think that your beat slowly morphed as you became more national and more focused on labor and kind of like the financial things that we talk about so frequently, which is why we're citing your articles. But how did that happen? You know, like, how did you at what point did you look around and say, this is something that I think is going to be a big enough story that I could basically cover it for my full time job? Yeah, I I always even before covering the Astros had something of an interest in the off the field stuff. Like I was an, uh, an MLB.com reporter at one point and we had an assignment, which was, was a good assignment from the, uh, the editor who I reported to at the time, which was, we had to do enterprise every week and, and that's good training. Um, and you know, I remember doing a story on how retired players were making ends meet and, and, and the career transition and the union at that time, I think they've since done something. They, they were thinking about a career transition program and, uh, and that kind of stuff. But then I get to Houston. Um, so I, I go from MLB.com to MassLive.com as a Red Sox beat writer. And that was only for the 2013 season when the Red Sox won the World Series. And I get to Houston and the whole project was so oriented around the CBA, right? Everything that was going on with the Astros during that Crane Luno rebuild uh, was influenced by what the CBA said. So tanking, service time, um, you know, you name it, they were searching for advantages, uh, you know, efficiencies, the outgrowth of money ball, yada, yada. So if I, I if I was going to cover that team effectively or, or what I thought would be effectively, like I didn't really have a choice but to get really intimate with labor and baseball. And it turned out that I actually found it fascinating and really interesting. Um, and so I left Houston. I went back to Boston. I worked a couple places in Boston. And I was still like, I remember writing for the Boston Herald about, um, market rank disqualification in the 2016 CBA, which is like something nobody cares about. <laughs> it mattered in Houston in the previous CBA. Um, but, you know, so I still had that interest there. And then toward the end of my time in Boston, I did this long story on the union um, and, and kind of where they were at. This is, I think it was in 18. I did this story coming off of the 16 negotiations, which everybody said went poorly. And, and I realized at that point that, you know, I like that stuff and I got let go in Boston um, and I started talking to the athletic and, you know, I've always been, I've used this in, in like literally every cover letter I've, I've written a oh, reporter no. first. Yeah. A reporter first who, who happens to write about sports. That's the approach I've tried to take. And that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that I'm like perfectly adept at, um, freedom of information requests. Uh, you know, I'm not, I've done some in my career, but, but that's the approach I've tried to take. And so there was a natural interest that developed. And you can probably largely thank the Houston Astros for fostering that natural interest. We love to thank the Houston Astros on this podcast. Very frequently, we're saying thank you so much for creating this this baseball environment. Were you getting like pushback from editors at those earlier stages when you were writing those labor stories that were very interesting to you? And were were people saying to you like, "Of course, people aren't going to read this dummy. Nobody wants to. Nobody wants to talk about labor. Nobody wants to talk about the CBA legal documents. They want to talk about Mookie Betts or." you know, the, the stars of the Red Sox at the time. No. And I think that's probably because at that stage I was still quite enthusiastic and still was, you know, effectively covering the on-field stuff too. You know, like yeah. I would still do my, 
uh, daily column when I was at NBC Sports Boston about whatever happened in the Red Sox game that night. And so it, it was more pet projects on the side. I don't remember anybody in Houston. I, I wrote a lot. You know, there, there were blog posts in addition to what ran in print. And they, they kind of let me go. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, I, I should be thankful for that, that I didn't have anybody step in and say, nobody cares about this, Evan. Um, but yeah, you know, it was certainly germane in, in Houston to what was going on. And, and I still yeah. kind of kept up with it in Boston. I mean, <laughs> I did get fired in Boston at my last job in Boston. So maybe that was part <laughs> of the problem was they wanted more like <laughs> trade rumors and not like these think pieces. Cause I was going off on, you know, I was doing long, longer stories that, um, you know, might not have always been on the hottest topic of the day when they would have preferred like me somehow connecting Kevin Durant, Jalen Brown trade rumors yeah. to, to mm-hmm. the Red Sox. The right? W-E-I-F-ication like, that's the kind of, of <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, look, I was at a TV station that that's, they, they were the Celtics broadcast partner and they, they had a lot of talk radio people on TV. Like a lot of that job was what they wanted was reacting to sports talk radio. Truly. And I was on WEI separately. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like, um, I mean, yeah, maybe not the, the sort of venue that is as welcoming to that sort of discussion, but, but the, the type of kind of reporting that you were doing feels particularly kind of germane to, to this moment that we're in now, right? Where it feels we're at a point where, it's so open how the CBA actually does influence what's going on the field, right? I feel like for for many years, a lot of fans have kind of tried to distinguish the two parts of of baseball, right? There's there's the sport of baseball, and then there's kind of the business of baseball. And I I only need to really know about that that first part, right? I'm I'm only interested in kind of what's going on in the field. It's millionaires versus billionaires. I want to, um, you know, I just want to watch some games. Um, has has the have the contours of this sort of beat over the last couple of years have they gone as you've kind of expected like have they gone to the places that you think you kind of would be going because sometimes news comes out of the commissioner's office or whatever and I'm like I I don't envy the person who has to like write about this with a straight face yeah yeah it's uh, you know looking over proposals the sides made on the, on the international draft. It's like, you know, man, I, I don't, I don't have a law degree. Why is this written in such an arcade fashion? It could be, it could be annoying. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's gone largely. I, I, the, the fun part of my job has been learning as I go along. So, and the one, the story I keep thinking about in that context is actually one I did last year where I finally kind of sat down and was like, all right. So what does the antitrust exemption actually do in baseball? Cause we all know it's there. Um, but I didn't have a, a, a totally deep understanding of it. And, you know, so I started to reach out to people and it, I, I did a story that I hope was digestible, but, it, it, and I hope people learn, but I learned right. And, and part of the fun of it is actually learning about these things behind the scenes. When I took over the job, um, at the athletic, I didn't know. I remember being scared of, labor history a bit i mean to an extent i still am it's so in depth um and there's so many years of of decisions and and things that have happened you know i i'm not a historian but learning about marvin miller i did a long story on marvin miller when he got inducted last year you know and and so that's been um the joy of it and i i think i'm naturally attracted a bit to the levers of power element of this that that appeals to me and and it definitely has directly kind of to the first part of your your question there 
um, because so much of what you see on the field is influenced by it. I, 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 I'm not lying, uh, to say my, my interest in the on the field action has naturally waned anyway, right? Like 95% of the stories I do, you could just end with a simple sentence. It's about money exclamation point. Right. (laughs) And you know, that, that can be a little, I, I am, I am as probably as far behind the curtain as, as most media members are at least kind of down the rabbit hole, right. Where it's hard. It is hard for me to separate the off the field stuff from the on the field stuff. And it, it look, it naturally kind of, it, it takes away some of the magic. There's no question about that, but I, but I am glad to have learned and seen as much as I have. Um, it, because it has, you know, the, the, we've the, my, the things in the minor leagues that are going on, and I trust lately, it, there has been a lot in the last three and a half years that's come up that's that wasn't quite as prominent before. Definitely. And I want to talk about all of those things and just how much it's changed in the last couple of years. Even what we've noticed talking about this, I would describe us as kind of like secondhand sources to what's going on in the in the labor and baseball world where we talk about it every week for sure, but we don't necessarily we don't report anything. We We kind of read what you're reporting and then talk to people that we know on the the minor league side and then we kind of digest what what is going on in between that but i think we probably need to talk about a major uh event in labor and baseball in the last 12 months which is the cba negotiations which you were very 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 deeply involved in and not to uh to to mine that recent personal history which was probably very challenging from a reporting standpoint and a, a personal standpoint, just being down there and walking through so many parking lots, just, just, just so many <laughs> steps. Well, we weren't in the parking lot. We were on the street through a gated, you know, through a kind of an, like a, I don't know if it was iron, some sort of. Oh, you were watching, you were gate. watching them in the parking lot, we were right? Watching right. them go through the parking lot. And then we would <laughs> change which little parking lot corridor we would watch through. There was one main parking lot and then there was a smaller little parking lot. So wow, it's of- like the the worst festival in the world. There's the main <laughs> parking lot and then the side parking lots. <laughs> Do you ever just, yeah. you have those moments where you realize it's so dumb that we organize society like this? That's got to be one of those moments. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I you, you mentioned that when you started getting into covering this beat, it was right around, you know, 2017 to 18. It was in the the fallout from the 2016 CBA negotiations. So, so being right in it, being in the middle of a CBA negotiation, now with a little bit of hindsight, a little bit of retrospect, what was it like to cover that, and how did it how did it differ from your expectations as you headed into it? I guess if I had really been right in the middle, that they would have they would have let us in the room to. Uh... Uh, chronicle everything but um yeah i guess as as much as media uh was um it's that's like i don't think i've actually thought about that what did it um play out what i imagined it playing out like you know i remember when the lockout started telling ken i think i was briefly doing a labor podcast for the athletic and i might have even said it in our first episode or one of the early episodes where i was kind of left with the feeling of like oh man what happens now like it, it was because I'm, I turned 35 this year and I was not a baseball fan in 94. I would have been probably too young to have any real cognizance of what was going on then. Anyway, refined uh, later takes. Yeah, right. At at, at the age of seven. Um, it, it, 
so it was it was very foreign to me you know i and i guess i didn't quite i knew there was a possibility i would end up having a stocks and meeting somewhere it was largely the reason i moved to new york was so that i could be close i'm from new york but you know i was in boston and i um i think the athletic and i were talking about whether it would make sense for me to stay in boston but they wanted me in new york and and, and that was smart uh because i could go you know to the union's offices or the league's offices even before the lockout to get to know people and talk to people and yada yada cover press conferences um etc you know i i don't know if if anything anything could have prepared me um <laughs> you know it's look it it it's grueling it is is what i would say it it was because you're it, it is as close to politics as baseball gets uh, you know it, it you mlb literally hired a former hillary clinton campaign operative a spokesperson a guy named glenn kaplan um to guide them through the lockout and through uh, through other difficult issues right they hired a campaign manager um and and both sides always want their their information out there they don't always want to say it on the record very rarely want to say it on the record and so there's a burden when everybody's talking anonymously uh, that you that you you try not to get used, you try not to get played, you you try to make sure the information is accurate, um, and because it's legal matters, you know you're you're constantly the wording of every sentence can tick somebody off, it, it, yeah. it, the, and and often it would be like, you know, there there were stories where I, I would feel I had been diligent on every sentence but one, and then that one sentence was the one that somebody was like, well, you know. I have a problem with it for this, that, and the other reason. And and you look, you can't care about every grievance everybody has, but that's what you're dealing with, you know. And and it, it gives me um, empathy for people who are covering regular politics. And and I, you know, if you're covering regular politics, you at least know that that work is. It's kind of tied to the greater good, ultimately, or at least it's affecting a broader swath of people. The, the the insular nature of baseball, yes, it is important. Yes, it is a proxy for a lot of people to understand labor. Like I like to think that people mm-hmm. uh, through my work might gain an interest. My work and others' work might gain an interest in in some of these topics that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Because I have, but you know, by by writing about it, I, I'm more attuned to. Uh, labor dynamics in general than I had been previously. Um, but you, you, you know, you don't at the end of the day have that sense when you're covering, I don't know, a, a, a senatorial race that like, uh, this, this is affecting a, a, a very large group of people. So it, uh, it's, it, it's a lot of squeeze and, and sometimes you're left with the feeling of, um, I, I don't like this sour juice, but. <laughs> a very good way of putting it i think yeah lemons <laughs> um you mentioned kind of that um maybe hesitance on the part of either major league baseball uh or the players union to really kind of comment publicly on on some topics and that can be challenging for a whole host of reasons um and you you you, you wrote astutely I think last month um, about one of the major topics uh, that's been a part of the CBA that has uh, maybe not coincidentally been one of the the most um, kind of 
hard to understand, opaque, um, that being the, the international draft, right? Which is kind of the outstanding piece from, from the CBA negotiations. And obviously over the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot going on with that. Um, I mean, I want to, I want to kind of talk about why you, why you think that it's being kind of treated in the way that it is. But I also would just love to ask you kind of what that negotiation kind of looks like right now, because it's something that we're interested in, but we haven't talked a lot about in depth on this podcast. So like for the folks who maybe are, are less familiar with, with what is going on in those negotiations, can you kind of give that top level overview of like what that looks like right now? Yeah. Well, so it just ended, which is, um, uh, I don't mind that. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the league made a final proposal or what it billed as a final proposal to the players. The players uh, rejected that on Monday, which was the deadline that they had agreed to back in March. So there's not going to be an international draft uh, in the near future. The, the caveat there is like, theoretically, any side can make a proposal at any point, but I think more likely is that it becomes something that gets discussed in the next round of bargaining. They could always reopen it if they want. They, they could always do something before then. Um, but they had a deadline. They, the deadline arrived and, uh, and there was no deal. The, the main trade off, the main proposition that was on the table was an inter- international draft arrives and the qualifying offer goes away. And the owners have long wanted a draft. The draft system is always better. Uh, for teams and clubs and owners because there's no competition you know you you don't have it's you have your draft pick and that's your player and you don't have to outbid another team for that player and that's not what the current international system is so it's something owners have always wanted uh players would certainly like to get rid of the qualifying offer which you know affects really just the best free agents so some of them are uh you know had been international amateurs at one point although it's not directly in that space you know it, it, it affects free agents generally um and then there's this whole other context that's that's quite significant of the corruption that goes on internationally in the dominican republic and other latin american countries where there are early deals there are so kids have to be 16 to sign but that they agree sometimes years ahead of that with teams uh, and teams are willing to make those agreements and a draft probably would have eliminated a lot of early deals but whether it would have fully or fairly addressed the other problems that exists for those players is, is, is another question. They have to pay a lot of money to their trainers and handlers, sometimes 40, 50% of, of their signing bonuses go to those guys. Uh, whether a draft would have actually eliminated that, uh, at no point did I, did anybody ever give me a clear understanding of how that would actually return more money to the players' pockets from the deal they sign. There would have been a little bit more money going to international amateurs. Like last year is 167 million. This year is 167 million in the current system. The league was proposing 191 when the draft would start next, uh, in 2024. The players are proposing 260, uh, for, for when the draft would start 260 million. But you know, the, the player side looked at the, the regular amateur draft and saw that, uh, in 2024, when the international draft would start, U.S. amateurs, so the players who get drafted normally, the bonus pool there would be over $300 million. And so they look at it and go, well, it, it, it's still a, uh, a really disparate amount 
to ha- to be at 191 versus the 300 that's going to the U.S. amateurs. So the the conclusion for the players was the offer was not fair. It was not for enough value. Didn't achieve enough of what they wanted as far as addressing corruption and and kind of bettering the lives of of those players. And so they walked away. It's pretty weird in retrospect that they were just like, we're just going to take two topics from the CBA and just punt them, punt them down the road. Um, I I don't know. I'm not like intimately familiar with every other, how every other industry handles their CBA negotiations. But my understanding is that most of the time when you get a CBA, it's, it's pretty complete. And then everybody kind of chills out after that. doesn't continue to negotiate for four or five months about two very, like, I think very, very important topics. Now, the qualifying offer, and this was much discussed, is it really the type of thing that you would want to quote unquote like trade for an international draft? And ultimately they'd not. So I don't know, but the international draft is so unwieldy and takes so much consideration about those outside elements that you're talking about and the corruption and how it would affect those things, whether it would resolve those things, because of course those things need to be resolved uh, sooner rather than later, according to all yeah. baseball fans, people in the industry and the international governments of the world. Um, but I guess I'm just curious. One of the things I'm so curious about how the CBA negotiations played out, and this is sort of reminding me of, is that, God, it really just seems like they put off everything to the, the very, <laughs> very last minute. And was that your yeah. understanding of how things went? Like, leading up to the lockout, there was basically no progress, right? Correct. Correct. They, they were very far apart. Yes. I guess, did you, because I haven't yet, did you gain any kind of better understanding as to why it ended up why it ends up playing like that playing out like that every time because you know it doesn't need to and i think that we talked we said this every time we got on the podcast during the lockout we said it didn't need to wait till this last moment they could have been negotiating for the last 18 months they could have been resolving some of the easier things to create goodwill and honestly both sides chose not to for whatever reason and those reasons date back to 1994 and even prior to that but having reported on it having talked to people on both sides do you feel like you better understand, because I, th- I don't think a lot of baseball fans do understand why it seemed like they just didn't resolve any of the easy things at any point in the process. Yeah. And this, this, I, I I'm trying to remember what specific stories this came up in, but the, the, I definitely did quote some people who had been involved in baseball uh, and maybe even outside of baseball negotiations about this, like uh, Lauren Rich, who, who was at the MLBPA um, back in the nineties, uh, long out of baseball at this point. But, it always waits till the last minute. It, it was basically the message I got. And, and it's about leverage creation. It, it, the, you, you don't want to move too soon and, and, and kind of give away your ground. Uh, it's, it's about maximizing your return, maximizing whatever you can get out of a deal. And so it, it, it did to me become, I don't know. Look, I actually do know that I didn't quite understand this at the beginning of the lockout because there was a little, we did a little pool among some of the writers when the lockout started. Where were we? Dallas? Yeah, we, we were outside of Dallas. Uh, and, and those of us, some of us who were there, you know, just did a little, you know, t- take a date, uh, and, and see if you're right. <laughs> and I was dead wrong. I don't remember what I said. I think I might have said February. And, and I, I didn't understand at that point that. Both sides would would probably be intent on pushing the other as as far as they could. And, you know, you'll hear one side or both sides say, well, we would have negotiated earlier if the other side was willing to. But clearly they weren't willing to negotiate. Um, you got to take that. 
I guess, a little bit skeptically, right? It's, it's very easy to say that, oh, you know, we're, 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 we're willing to move, but the other guy w- wasn't. So we didn't. Well, if you were willing to move, you did, but th- did you move? You know, it, <laughs> um, so I, I, I do think that's actually a, a kind of through line in negotiations, not even necessarily in, in collective bargaining, just in general is that people don't, people don't move until they have to. And, and that was what was borne out here. And, and I do think that's something to keep in mind in the future with lockouts. If, if there's another one, I'm sure there will be. Um, so that, that part in the end, well, although I didn't understand it at first, I do not look back on as surprising because th- th- that's what it's about. It's leverage creation. We, uh, we obviously have to talk about um, talk about minor leaguers because we talk about that a lot on this show. Um, but before we leave the CBA completely, I got to ask: do, do you know when it's dropping? <laughs> like, like was the international <laughs> draft <laughs> like like was was that kind of the last piece that they were either going to you know copy paste something in or strike it entirely? But I know that they're, they're um, working in suggestion least, <laughs> mode in Google Docs right now. Right, I know that like myself yeah. and honestly some of our listeners will are like going to the MLBPA or like the the agent side, you know, and just like refreshing that documents page and and nothing's there yet. So what's the holdup? Yeah, my understanding is that it, it typically does take a few months. Uh, the last I heard was that it'd probably be out in the fall. Uh, I don't know if that means the off season, you know, November, something like that. The reality is that the people in labor relations, I, my understanding is that the league is the one uh, at least kind of doing the initial draft of it. The union certainly will review it and sign off on it, but, but that it's the league side that's putting it together. Uh, and that you know, some of the people involved, they, they are busy with some other things. It, it, it's a, it's a long process. And, and I, I don't say that facetiously. Uh, it, it, uh, I, I can say many things facetiously, but you know, um, they have, they, they, they do have stuff to work on. Like, for example, you could imagine that, uh, the Trevor Bauer case would be time consuming for labor relations such that, you know, an individual involved there might, might need a little time to get to the CVA portion if they're dealing with Bauer. So. It'll get done. It's not atypical for it to take some time, but I am, uh, yeah, I too would like to, uh, to see, to see the damn thing at this point. But I, <laughs> I, th- I think November, I want to say November was, was what I heard, but I am not, I'm not reporting that with confidence. It's like a Frank Ocean album or like a Rihanna album. <laughs> you know, like we keep hearing they're working on it. They're working on it. It's going to fucking drop. And then it's just like, oh, it just randomly drops next winter. So I guess we'll talk about yeah. it then. Um, yeah, you know, they have an MOU and memorandum of understanding. They, they have something that they're yeah. operating off of as far as the changes, but no, they don't have the final language of, of that document that ends up being public, uh, at this point. And, and the MOU seems to have been so far kept under, uh, wraps pretty well. Yeah. Though the, I think the large kind of scaffolding of that memorandum of understanding was what you guys were reporting on and what we were talking about at the time that that yeah, kind of sealed yeah, that they, deal so the the other elements of it are kind of legalese so to speak correct i mean i guess it'll be that's an interesting thing whether there's anything in there that comes out that we we didn't quite know, know about, about before yeah the union at the end of the lockout one of the stories i think it was like the last one i did before i disappeared for for like a month um rightfully the, so the union had sent a had sent a memo to agents and players or at least agents that listed out all, all the things that at least they were 
interested in pointing out. And so I, I wrote about that and, and that's, that's the framework. Yeah. So we want to talk about the minor league labor story as it's evolved as well. When you, when you leaned into this beat, when you started covering, you know, uh, CBA elements and the, the structures and the levers of power in baseball, were you expecting the minor leagues to be one of those things? Because I don't think we were. We, I mean, we started talking about it and the conditions. And of course, people have been reporting on this, writing about this for years now. But it never seemed like a front and center conversation in the way that it does now. So, so were you surprised by that? Or was there kind of some bubbling up about you know, those conditions and wanting to center them and improve them on the league side or the player side as you started to get into this industry and this beat? Yeah, when I, you know, my original iteration of the job was half business of baseball and half New York media coverage. Like I was doing Q and A's with media people. Um, and that quickly we realized that I needed to focus full time on, on business stuff. Um, I know I don't think when I took the job, I was thinking or, or there was any discussion about the minor leagues are going to make a lot of noise. And I think truly what happened was advocates for minor leaguers came along and, uh, you know, you also had more than baseball, which is another organization, but you, you had these dedicated groups crop up that wanted to make noise. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're legitimate. Uh, you know, this, the, these are operations that are, uh, funded. Certainly advocates for minor leaguers has been, uh, that are hiring and they've already affected some change. So, no, I, 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 if I'm thinking back to my feeling in 19 when I took my job, that I think that, uh, you know, a, a minor league potential unionization effort would be afoot at that point in a way that people would be writing about, um, or that, you know, the housing policy would change as quickly as it did. No. And, and I, I sometimes think back to when I was in college, I, I was a feature writer, um, unpaid because that was what people, did at that time yeah. um, <laughs> for a play for scout.com which at that point there, there was something called inside pitch magazine which was a little mets magazine um and i was covering the mets minor leagues and so i spent my summer uh covering the binghamton mets double a they're now the rumble ponies and the brooklyn cyclones i did another summer i did the same internship twice which is you know i, I don't know you loved it you loved how it was unpaid the first time so much that you just you rolled right back through I, yeah, or I just didn't like understand that you're supposed to go and keep doing different things to climb in the world. I don't know. Um, they were like, they're paying I, me an experience. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, one of my buddies in Boston uh, would always uh, use the phrase exposure bucks. So yeah, I got, I, I got exposure bucks. Um, but yeah, I think back to that and, and kind of the, you know, my, my upfront time with the minor leagues there. Uh, and to think about what you know the, the topics the conversation are now just how ingrained it was back then that like you suffer and you will enjoy it and it, it would be it wasn't even like a consideration that you question the suffering you know it's it, it's it has changed the world has changed uh in the in the wow, it's 15 years so yeah it's existential crisis day for me but um <laughs> yeah so yeah it it certainly seems like a kind of a microcosm of a broader shift in society on like how we think about labor, right? Like, I mean, you talk about unpaid internships, and that's I 
feels very akin to kind of what's happening in the minor leagues. And that and that discussion, similarly, in the last few years, has really kind of come to the front and center, right? About kind of young uh, or labor among young people and kind of how unfair it is and and arguably yeah. like like should not be legal, right? It it feels like or isn't lo- legal in the right, case of a hundred eighty five billion dollar settlement. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, so I kind of what do you what do you feel like is kind of coming coming next in this discussion? There's obviously like the 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 Senate uh, Judiciary Committee that's having this dialogue with Major League Baseball and advocates for for minor leaguers. Um, do you do you feel like that has teeth at all? Is it kind of more um, a a a way to kind of show that that the Senate actually can get something done does have does have interests. Um, yeah, what do you feel like is coming down the pipeline? It's it's I think frankly too early to tell how serious the Senate Judiciary Committee inquiry is. You know, if if they end up holding a hearing, well, that is a step more serious than simply sending letters uh, of requests for information to Manfred and to advocates. Uh, if they hold a hearing and then subsequently introduce legislation, well, that's a step more serious than just holding a hearing. You know, it's a midterm year. If they're going to hold a hearing, you would think it would have to be, um, not, not long from now. You know, it, 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 it can't be that far away if, if they're going to do it. Uh, but you know, would it be surprising if in the end they don't hold a hearing? No, I, I think, I think in politics very little is surprising these days so it, there are people who are kind of indicating look this is serious it, it is on its face more serious than some other efforts like the one last year when you'd had just the republican senators introduce uh, a bill attacking the antitrust exemption because this is bipartisan right and it is a senate judiciary committee committee and it is the the, the two uh, top members of that committee uh you know durbin and grassley who are involved but how far they take it, whether Grassley, who represents a state that has six blackout uh, teams, right? Iowa, you can't want, I don't know what you can watch in Iowa, but, um, you know, is he just trying to extract his pound of flesh? Pound of flesh. Uh, so funny to imagine it, Chuck Grassley sitting at home, not being able to watch a marquee game and being like, you know what? It's time to get the gears in motion. It's time to take <laughs> away this antitrust exemption. It's gone too long. He's, he's tried to, uh, you know, uh, Lock out his IP address. He's gone through all the uh, <laughs> uh, different ways to illegally access it. I'm not encouraging does, that. Does Chuck Grassley know what a VPN is? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, right. I don't think exactly. so. Does Chuck Grassley you know what a computer is. It's not clear to me. Maybe. Um, I want to ask you something that's probably very complicated to ask or answer, and and slightly thorny. So take it whatever direction that you want to. But how do you handle? because we handle it in a very aggressive way. But how do you handle when what one of the sides, more often the league side, in my opinion, what what they say seems very obviously false? Because I feel like with regards to the minor leagues, this comes up very often. With regards to the opaque financial nature of Major League Baseball, in the 21st century in terms of how much revenue they're bringing in, how much they're actually spending, how much they are making. We don't know all of those things, though we know that many of the, the claims that the league has made in the past are, are false or are half-truths or are not telling the full story. And as this picture becomes clearer and clearer and clearer, 
because of reporting from people like you, because of conversation about these things, because players are talking more openly about it. How do you handle where to come down on some of these statements and some of these claims that Major League Baseball makes? It probably depends on the individual story uh, and the and the uh, the individual circumstance. Certainly, there are times when I don't print something at all. Um, I remember there was a sentence I removed. You know, if MLB gives you a statement, typically you're going to print whatever either side says on the record. Um, there was a statement related to the minor leagues that MLB gave that had a sentence that said something like the industry is trying to improve things or something like that. And I, and I just chose not to print that one sentence of the statement uh, on the feeling that MLB does not speak for the industry. It, it is as much as it may want to, it is not. And I, and I do remember MLB being mad that I didn't print that. And I explained why, and I explained why to my editors, why we shouldn't do it. And we, and we didn't, um, you know, in, in, and so I, I think most of the times I, I try to contextualize it. You know, are there quick hit stories where I don't go when I, I don't pick apart every sentence? Yes. Um, you know, I, I think one of the good things about the minor league situation is you have advocates for minor leaguers who's and Harry Marino, the executive director and Garrett Brocious, who also is over there, who have very often been willing to speak on the record and kind of make the arguments themselves. Ideally, as a reporter, um, you you have a third party who's uh, you're, you're you're relaying third party information. I, I think is ideal, uh, but you also have the ability and an obligation to contextualize things that are uh, half truths or or are inaccurate. And I and I've tried to do that a lot. Uh, I know there are people who don't like that. I've tried to do that a lot. And I there are a lot of I, I think a lot of times it ends up being. You know, like when people are making off the record arguments to you, they want you to print them. And and if you sit there and go, well, this is not uh, this is not a valid argument. You can just choose not to print it. And 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 certainly there are times I do that. So it, it what I've said in the past, and I, I, I guess I'm kind of expounding on that, is you have to have a very high filter. And I have tried to have a very high filter. It doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't mean that every, you know one of the things that can happen is if you take a lot of time in a story to go into exposition or context, you can almost distract from the main part of it. Uh, it's, it's a tricky balance. So it depends if I'm doing a really long 3000 word story um, on something like, yeah, I'm going to get to the context of whether the experiments in the minor leagues are something that minor league players like, not just the question of, how do these affect the playing rules in Major League Baseball, right? There's all sorts of context that you try to get to. Um, if it's a 400-word story that's quick, it, it might not always be there. And that might not mean that that's good. It, it might be the case that every time you write about something, you, you have the full context. But um, it can get repetitive. I, I, you know, During labor, I, I, think we tr I think we tried every time to, when, when finances would come up, I, I think the vast majority of times I've written about finances or, or kind of the league saying, you know, uh, revenues, I, I, I would say, well, we can't verify this, right? I would note this is not something we can verify. Um, and so, yeah, you're, it's, you're constantly thinking about things like that. Uh, and it's, it's tricky. It's, it's, I don't know if it's an art form, but it, it, um, 
<laughs> it requires constant thought is, is what I'm saying. It's kind of yeah. like pushing the rock up the hill, to be honest, because, you know, these you're just never going to know all of the financial picture of baseball. And the reason I asked is because I think that you do a really good job of it. And it's the reason that we so often cite your articles on the podcast is because they do have a lot of that context that is very hard to parse through, is very hard to explain, is important to get from both sides. Um, but I, I, I was just curious because that financial picture of baseball is just never going to be fully clear as long as it's, you know, privately owned by the, the own, the billionaire owners who run the sport. Yeah. There was a, um, what was the quote? It was, I, Manfred was asked about, this was 19 or 20. It was 19. It was, it was after an owner's meetings in New York and ESPN was there and was asking him about, um, whether there was, it was, it was like outside the lines, OTL. I think Jeremy Schapp was there, um, like a couple producers. And I think it was a producer who was asking the question, uh, about the, whether MLB had data on injuries ca- caused by the ball. I don't believe it was injuries caused by the bat, but, but this was in regards to netting and, and they were, you know, newly putting up the netting, I think going back to 19. Manfred had an answer that I, I think I use and I did a long story on him a couple of years ago, like a 5,000 word story or something like that. Um, where in denying in, in when this ESPN person asks for like, you know, can you give us more of this information? Uh, he said something to the effect of that's not how business is done in America. And it, it was a very, uh, I can find it as you guys, uh, we have an interlude to the next question but um (laughs) it was it it, it stuck out at me um at at the time is wow yeah that that, he's right and and it's true it's not just nakedly philosophical and how they approach the the whole nature of answering questions yeah (laughs) yeah yes exactly well and that kind of um speaks to to the last question that i wanted to ask you and you've obviously been very generous with your time um but I this is this is a discussion that we were kind of having uh on our last episode about Rob Manfred and kind of his um his effectiveness as a commissioner, right? And whether or not he is actually a good commissioner. I think obviously that that the answer to that question kind of probably depends on the perspective that you're looking at it from, right? Are you asking that as a fan? Are you asking that as an owner, are you asking that as a player? I'm taking um, the owner's perspective on this one, Alex. I, I'm just getting yes, myself been, in that mindset. Yeah, I feel like Steve great. Cohen frequently. You know, we operate a very similar life and in a similar space. <laughs> but but I'm kind of curious from your perspective, what is your read on kind of his tenure over the last, I guess, you know, seven plus years? Not that you've been covering him specifically that entire time, but like... Do you think that do you get the sense that the owners are are happy with kind of the way that he has performed, protected their interests while while somewhat advancing the the cause of baseball? It's obviously it's a it's a thorny question and it's an impossible one to answer, but I'm I'm curious what you think of it. Yeah, the quote was Honestly, we collect all sorts of data that we don't release to the public. That's sort of the way people do business in America. Um, yeah, I I love that because because it kind of speaks to it, his sort the, of yes. He's such an enigma because he does kind of lay all this stuff out for you so often that it's like, are you supposed to 
Are you supposed to be saying that to, to us? Well, he's a lawyer, yeah, he, you know? He he is so adept at lawyer speak, but it doesn't always translate to commissioner speak. And sometimes it mm-hmm. does because sometimes you're talking about CBA negotiations, but sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're talking about rule changes. Sometimes you're talking about the state of baseball in America. Sometimes you're talking about fun players. Like, it's just, that's Rob. That's the Rob experience. But yes, Evan, I'm, I'm so curious to hear what you think. Yeah, so the place to start might actually be an assessment of Bud Selig, which was or is that he was certainly avuncular came off as and did, he did truly love looking at the box score and all these things every night. Right. But underneath that was a guy whose prime interest was the interest of the owners. Um, so he had this varnish that, that effectively kind of hid uh, or masked or distracted from what he was also doing. And people wrote about it. It's not like people didn't understand it. Um, you know, Manfred, in a weird way, I almost prefer Manfred style because it is more direct. It, it, it is not like, I don't think the thing to want is someone who makes you feel good, but is actually doing something very different from what he makes you feel, which is what I think a lot of people do want is they, they want yeah, that. Yeah. They that, want Adam Silver, bro. Right. <laughs> yeah. They want Uncle Bud. They want Uncle Bud up there. You know, now that said, Manfred. At this point, there's enough body of evidence. The guy lacks touch. He, he, there is a, he tries. You can tell there are times and he goes into press conferences like he did at the All-Star game, trying to be calm, trying to be kind of light, but he can get revved up. Um, he, he does not know how to land things. Uh, well, he is a lawyer. You can tell he's a lawyer. Uh, he does not have the charisma of an Adam Silver or, or these other people. It doesn't mean he lacks charisma entirely. It's just that the public speaking, winning over hearts and minds part of his job is not um, what he's good at. And at this point, I'm not sure he's he's going to reach that point. You know, it's kind of wondering over the last few years, does he start to get better? Does he kind of avoid the, the steps, uh, you know, stepping in it? And, and he doesn't. Um, and so that's just who he is. The owners, even during the lockout, you saw it. They, they have to corral some owners sometimes he, he was not a unanimous selection at the start of his uh campaign for commissioner remember tom warner uh ran against him um uh tim brosden and as well if boy mm-hmm. things are fading from from my memory you know another, another executive at mlb um was interested in the job as well you know there, there were two other contenders and there was ownership support certainly for warner um you know, the red sox chairman so it's not like the faction of owners who didn't like him back then. Every single one of them has now been won over and, uh, you know, everybody thinks he's great. And, you know, I, I interviewed Bud Selig when he did his book publicity, you know, his book came out yeah. in 19 and he, he made some comment. Time. Yeah. What a time he, he made some comment then about how, uh, some of the power had gone and come and gone with him with Bud. And I asked him to elaborate on it and probably sensing that I, he had said something that piqued my interest. He kind of then, you know, scurried away the topic. Uh, so my book, but Evan. <laughs> yeah, it's all my book. It's, 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 and it's all, you know, completely accurate, not overly rosy at all. In both Sewell's <laughs> book. But, um, you know, so no, he, he does not have the love of every owner, certainly not at every moment. Uh, and they have to corral the owners through a lockout, get people to to get on board um he ultimately knows his job is to protect their interests make them money i'm not saying that he doesn't think he has some interest 
in the quote unquote greater good of the game. But he's very forward about what his position is. You know, he, he, he said to me when I interviewed him for that long story I did a couple of years ago, you know what, that it was reasonable to compare him to the CEO of Major League Baseball, you know, that he is not the arbiter of all that is good and righteous in baseball. And the reality is that there hasn't really been a commissioner like that ever, maybe aside from Landis. I say Vincent fancied himself that, I think. Uh, but, you know, whether that's ever been the commissioner's job or anything close to the commissioner's job in modern times. You know, it, but that's what people want. They, they want Uncle Bud as I'm like knocking over things here. Um, and uh, you know, even if you have an Uncle Bud up there who stands up there and makes you feel good, I don't think that job's ever going to be much different. That doesn't mean you couldn't have somebody who's like does things, uh, handles certain things better than Manfred. You could, you can certainly, there's, there's a long list of things you can look back on and say, well, gee, Rob Manfred could have handled that better. And some of that is by his own admission. He's admitted some things he could, could have done better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and one of those things is that after the CBA was signed, he came out and was like, oh, I probably could have done, you know, better with player relations. And I called Tony and I said X. And it's probably a little bit too early to assess whether or not uh, that has actually played out that way, played out any differently than it had been going for the past five or six years. But I don't know. One, one small follow up on that, and then and then we'll let you get out of here. Is I guess I'm curious if you think that they would put a Rob type in next after Rob, or would they kind of go back to the well of a former owner who understands acutely understands those interests, like like Bud, who has had that personal experience with wanting to get more cash in your own pocket, or or would it be like a someone who would come up through the league office, been involved in negotiations? um on a on a minute level um do you have any kind of sense on that no except that if you look at what's going on in the other leagues um and you, you kind of look at the history of it I, I, it probably makes more sense that it would be not an owner it would be my guess that doesn't mean an owner couldn't uh, you know curry enough favor with with his owner buddies and and, and make a run that uh but you know if it, it what Stern, Batman, Manfred, you know, it, it, it is certainly the flavor of the day is to have a trained, um, lawyer who is in that role. I'm trying to remember. I can't remember off the top of my head whether Silver was a labor lawyer or not. Um, but certainly, you know, Batman was Proskauer. Uh, David Stern, I believe was also Proskauer. Uh, you know, so that, that has been the, the progression. Um, has been lawyers and and so it, w- it would be a departure put it that way if they went a different direction yeah it certainly strikes me as them wanting to have someone who is deftly skilled in the art of um of public relations and kind of that legalese perspective especially given how much of this is now kind of playing out in in the open right how many people are paying attention to what what the commissioner is saying it's hard to put someone up there who might speak um a little more rosily about the state of the game or something when people are asking very um very tough questions to answer and manfred for better or for worse is is kind of willing to to meet the moment right and <laughs> and and say what's on his mind whether that's whether that's the right thing or or not so yeah yeah and if you get a different commission you know i do think it would if the question is what serves the interests of the commissioner's office and the owners better? It would be somebody who does a better job of winning over hearts and minds publicly. 
Mm-hmm. But if you have that person, does that mean that the, the material pursuits are any different? Um, my guess is no. And, and I'm not saying that in defense of the pursuits they have now. I'm not saying that what the league office is doing is right or just or should what or is what they should be doing. I'm just skeptical that if you have a different person in there, um, that they're actually behind the scenes going to be doing much that's different. But they'll make you feel better, you know, and, and, I th- and, you know, people like to feel good. You like to turn on the news and, you know, see a see a cute dog you know, jumping around. I mean, it's- we should make a dog the commissioner <laughs> of Major League Baseball. That would be the, the highest approval rating possible. Um, I hope we made people feel good with this interview. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how it's received. Uh, Evan Drellick, The Athletic. Is there anything that you would like to plug? Let people know where they can find, where they can go get your work, anything you're working on specifically that you'd like the lovely listeners of Tipping Pitches to go check out. Uh, my book, Winning Fixes Everything, is out on Valentine's Day. So right after the Super Bowl, right in time for spring training, uh, I think it is a look at the Astros scandal and the modern management of a baseball team in a way people have not had before. And I've worked on it for a long time, and I do hope everybody checks it out. It's so romantic. <laughs> Valentine's it's, Day. It's my love letter to baseball. <laughs> <laughs> Evan, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Okay, thank you to Evan Drellick. Thank you to fill-in chef Jordan Schusterman. Thank you to all of our new patrons this week. CJ, Dara, Nicholas, Adeline, Jason, Alexander, Nirvan, and Nick. Special shout out to the five members of the Alex Rodriguez VIP Club tier on our Patreon. We shout out five of those members at the end of every episode, no matter what. Those members this week are Diogo, Heather, Margarita, Stratton, and William. You may have noticed that we did not spend any time on this episode up until this point talking about the death of Vin Scully. Of course, we, like the rest of the baseball community, are mourning Vin's loss. He is truly the most legendary and iconic broadcaster in baseball, but one of the most legendary and iconic members of the, the United States baseball community. And we are going to spend much more time talking about Vin and his his career and him as a person and what he meant to the baseball world when Alex is back next week. One final piece of housekeeping. We have a live Q&A that will be executed as a watch-along with Yankees Red Sox on Sunday Night Baseball on August 14th. This is exclusively for our Alex Rodriguez VIP Club tier members of the Patreon. More information to come both in our newsletters as well as on the Patreon messaging system, as well as in Slack, you will not. it will not be hard for you to find where to participate in that when August 14th rolls around. But if you're interested in that and you're not a member of the A-Rod VIP Club tier, just consider checking it out. Thank you so much for listening to this very packed episode, and we will talk to you next week. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya!